our church unique in a lot of ways is not only are we people of the Word, but we're people of the Spirit. If you have visited other churches before, how many have visited other churches before? How many know that oftentimes they lean one way to the other? You're either a church that just goes into the Word. I think of like a moody church. It's a good church, but, you know, if you were to watch a moody service, it's, you know, as, it's, as they go through it, it's worship and Word, you know, and it's pretty like, you know, laid back. That's going to be it. But there's not going to be an opportunity for the Spirit to move there. A lot of those kind of traditional churches do not believe that the Spirit still moves in that way. And then you might watch a service that might be more like a Bethel service. Has anybody ever heard of Bethel or people like that? Bethel, that's Bill Johnson and those folks, and they might have a lot of flag waving, a lot of the spiritual experiences, but when you listen to the sermon, you might only hear one or two verses, only one or two verses. And so what we need to do is we need to be people of the Word and of the Spirit. We need to bring both together, amen? So think about the first half of the service, what you were just a part of, is a time to worship, hear the word of the Lord by the Spirit of God, and then to interact with that. Think about your halftime, that's, uh, that first half, that's what it is. Then we have a halftime break with the announcements, amen? And then we come for the second half, which is going to be the what? The word of God. So open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 10 as we go verse by verse through the scriptures. And so I never want you to take for granted what we're doing here. And by the way, I don't think we're the only ones who do word and spirit, by the way. But I just wanted to give you an example that there are churches that sometimes lean one way or the other, and it is our goal that you lean both ways, that you can be right in balance, you know, as you walk in the word and the spirit. Somebody say, good shepherd. Thank you. Today I want to read to you an entire chapter of John. If you're new here, we're glad that you're here. We're going in first service through the book of John, verse by verse. Second service, the book of Hebrews. All of that's online or on the app if you miss any service. Today it's one of those messages where I don't think I need to spend a lot of time uh, going through all the details, but simply just reading it and applying it to our lives. Somebody say, Good Shepherd. Amen. That's what we're going to be learning about. You probably have already heard something from this passage before in your Christianity if you haven't read it yet. You know that Jesus is our good shepherd. But did you know how controversial that was at the time of Jesus? I mean, we think now, yeah, Jesus is my good shepherd. That's basic. That's Christianity 101. In this story where Jesus reveals that, they call him demon-possessed and they want to stone him again. Wow, think about that. What you now take for granted and go, yes, Jesus is my shepherd. How many believe Jesus is your shepherd? Okay, we're going to get to the end of the message right here at the beginning. How many believe it? One more time. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Jesus is my shepherd. We know that. We, we believe that. But here in this story, that is going to be so controversial that Jesus is going to get people so mad that they could take up actual stones and out of anger, throw it at him until it busts his head open, until it spills his guts on the ground and he bleeds out. Think about how much anger you have to have towards someone to say, I will stone you to death. And let me just pause right here as we remember the persecuted church. That is how angry this message makes many nations, governmental leaders, and other religions around the world. If you have not seen the sight of a brother or sister suffering for Jesus, you need to do it. 
You need to Google Indian Christians and Orissa being beaten for their faith. And guards your heart that you don't then become in the flesh angry towards these people because it will put so much um, emotion in you to watch it. But I've showed it to my children and I've wanted them to see it, <clears throat> excuse me, that that's what they would do in this country, many people, if they could get away with it. You've seen it as we've been preaching the gospel to them. They'll get within inches of your face screaming and hollering. And if there wasn't a fear of the law, that's what they would do. And so this is a reality around the world to say Jesus is Lord in certain parts of the extreme Hindu communities you can be stoned to death, beaten to death, killed. To say Jesus is your shepherd, Jesus is Allah, Isa is Allah, in the Muslim nations can have you burned alive as one Nigerian sister was burned alive by Boko Haram as she was street preaching in Nigeria. May God be with the Nigerian church as they're wrestling against Islam right now. But we know it's not the flesh and blood. It's against those principalities. Amen. And so it is a dear message, it's an encouraging message, but let us, not under, let us not forget or misunderstand that this precious message to us is also one that can cost you your life. Because even today, there are people that are losing family members, they are losing their privileges, they are losing their, their freedoms because they trust Jesus to be their shepherd. Are you with me in John chapter 10 verse 1? All right, let's go. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Would you highlight that, please? I want everyone to see this, and if you ever get to talk to Oprah Winfrey, make sure you show it to her in love. Amen? Because Jesus is exclusive. The world doesn't like Christianity's exclusivity. They want us to be inclusive towards all other religions. The whole verse, would you highlight it, please? I want you to understand your Jesus is exclusive. He understood who he was and what he came to do. And for him to say there were other ways when there wasn't another way would actually make him to be a liar. Notice what he says right here. If you come from any other way, you are a thief and a robber. Who knows the timeline of religious history? Did Buddha come before or after Jesus? Before. I said, if you know the timeline of religious history, maybe I should have said, then answer the question. But you guys gave your best guess. We know that the belief of God in the Jewish faith comes from Adam and Eve, beginning of the world. But I'm talking about religious figures that came in time to make claims about their authority over the world. Did Buddha come before or after Jesus? He came before. You can look it up. Did the Hindu gurus come before or after Jesus? Many of them came before did the gods of pagan Rome and pagan Greece come before or after the incarnation? Maybe that's what I should have clarified. I don't know if that's what you guys were going for, Jesus' eternality. Was that what you guys got confused with, some of you? That's not what we were going with here. I'm sorry. We're talking about in the incarnation. 
We know in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What we're talking about is in his incarnation. Now that you can touch him and feel him like you could touch Buddha, like you could touch these other uh, gurus, and like you could touch the philosophers who taught about their Greek and Roman gods. In the religious timeline, Jesus came after, did he not? So he's got to clean up the record now. So he's in a space in time, and he's now got to explain what has been going on before him. And what does he say has been going on before him? He says they have been thieves and robbers. So any of the Jewish people who came under the spell of the false teaching of Buddhism, they were following thieves and robbers. Anyone during that time who might have come under the spell of pagan gods, as we know during the time of the Jewish people, that they would oftentimes worship Baal, worship Molech, and so forth. He is saying to them, they're thieves and they're robbers. Now look at verse 2. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is talking about there's someone who tries to go around the gate. These are thieves and robbers, but there's someone who goes right in through the gate. The one who enters by the gate is the what of the sheep? The shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Somebody say his voice. Thank you. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, I want you to see right here who Jesus is talking to directly. Because I believe I'm a sheep of God. How many believe you're a sheep of God? Okay, how many know you can go bad, but you're not bad? Amen. You may bad, but you're not bad. Amen. You're a holy sheep of God. But at the same time, I don't think he's talking about us. I don't think this is about you and me. And here's why. Because Jesus is a person in the time and space of Jews waiting for the Messiah. And these Pharisees are having trouble recognizing who he is. There are some Jews that do indeed recognize he is the Messiah. We see them throughout the book of John, even Nicodemus. These ones are being drawn to Jesus. So Jesus now wants to explain why are the Jews rejecting him, especially the leadership? And he's now explaining it to them like this. You are not one of my sheep. You do not hear my voice because you're listening to thieves and robbers. Now, can that apply to us? Absolutely. But let me tell you why it's dangerous to apply this right here to you, because then you miss the context. These Jews are saying, we are disciples of Moses. We follow the Torah, and we don't believe in you. And Jesus is wanting to explain why they can't believe in him. You see, to believe in Jesus means you're listening to what the Father says about Jesus. See, the gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd to come on in. And these Jews had not been listening to the gatekeeper, therefore they could not hear the shepherd. Now, can I apply this to you? Absolutely. And the application would be this. You can be so religious that you can miss Jesus. 
You see, like I said, if you don't go through the first application of Jesus to the Jews and you just go right to the snuggly, wuggly place of being one of the little lambs in your shepherd's arms, you know, you just skip right into that place. You forget that this is actually a rebuke. This is not just coming as, hey, everybody, you're my little lambs. Come hang out with me. It's actually coming as a rebuke to say who is and who is not a sheep. Why is that important? Because still over 60, almost 70% of Americans claim to be Christians, and yet they don't hear what the shepherd is saying. They don't listen to what the gatekeeper, the Father, is saying. And certainly, they do not follow in line with the Holy Spirit. Instead, who are they listening to? Thieves and robbers. They're listening to others that go around Jesus, that try to make a way or a religion outside of Jesus' exclusivity, and then they now call themselves God's sheep, but they're lying. The Jewish people have to come face to face with the reality that they're not God's sheep. As we're going to see in this context, that is so devastating to them that they're going to want to kill Jesus for even suggesting that. And isn't that today the anger of the backslidden church towards churches like ours that teach Christianity and the love of God by obeying his commands? Isn't some of the worst hate that you and I get from supposed Christians? Do you know that people who chased uh, Juan and his family out of town, do you know that many of them claim to be Christians there at Nini's Deli saying, burn it down? If you would have went around and took a survey of those people, some of them even were Bible college students. If you were to walk around and take a survey of what is your religious affiliation, I think it would have held up pretty true, and I know my brother is here nodding his head, I think it would have held up pretty true to the stats of our nation. Six, seven out of ten would have said, well, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you swearing at this man? Why are you cussing out? Oh, because he's obviously a liar. He obviously deserves this. You see, the Jewish people are about ready to kill Jesus because in their mind they are so deceived to believe killing Jesus is the right thing. Do not paint a picture in your mind of religious persecution that is so romantic and sensationalized that you think that the one who hates you really down deep inside believes you're right. Like there's some kind of conflict inside of them. Don't fall for that romantic idea of persecution. They had pictures of the Nazi Holocaust workers, those who were working in the, the death chambers, taking a weekend off, pictures of them. And they're drinking, they're eating dessert, they're playing with each other outside, like enjoying their life. They had zero conviction over what they were doing. Study about the slave trade and those who owned and operated and took advantage of African Americans. They were under no conviction even in the church. Preaching, teaching, They thought they were true Christians, upholding a way of life that deserved dignity and respect. All in the name of God. Mentioning, as we did before, the persecution we receive from other nations. After they do that to the Christian brothers and sisters in India, in Nigeria, there is no conflict in their soul. Many of them take pride in what they do. Some... In Pakistan, 
after they have done their deaths, uh, killed people, according to blasphemy, become heroes worn on T-shirts. You can read about them. And the police pretend they don't even know where to find them. You see, my friend, you have to understand this. Those who do not have Jesus as their literal shepherd, hearing from Jesus, can have religion on the outside and have all the devil in hell on the inside. Jesus is telling them, the reason why you're missing me is because you're not even one of my sheep. But you think that you are. You think you have what I'm offering you. In, a, in, in the place that we end last week, they think they can see, but Jesus says you're really blind. And they're defending that they can. Oh, are, Jesus, are you saying that I am blind? They mocked Jesus. And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would be humble. But since you act the way you do, you claim to see, but you're really blind. Let us, brothers and sisters, in our strive for righteousness and justice, not become deceived like the Pharisees. If it can happen to them, those who were once defenders of the faith, we will learn that Jesus is going to go to a festival, the Feast of Dedication. It's Hanukkah. It comes from the time of the Maccabees, between what we call the intertestamental period from the time of Malachi to Matthew. There is a time of about 400 years of Jewish history that's not written in our scriptures, and there was an occupation of the land by the Greeks, and the Jewish people rose up, and they fought, and they rebelled, and there was a miracle of the candlelight still burning for eight days, and so now they have the menorah that has the eight candlelights, and this becomes a feast, right? But do you want to know who the heroes of the Maccabean revolt are? The Pharisees. So the very celebration that Jesus goes to, it's not one of the biblical feasts, Hanukkah, the, the one that Jesus goes to celebrate and say, look at what God did, look at the miracle that God did, was with the very ones who now want to kill him. My friends, take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. Within moments, you could be on the opposite side of God's will for your life because of a hard heart that refuses to hear the shepherd's voice. Oh, it's encouraging to be a sheep and to hear his voice and to not be deceived by a robber. But let that not become a pride inside of us that says, oh, I know what God's thinking. I don't need to go back to the scriptures. I have my thoughts, and I know God would agree with me. Oh, I know what God would do in this situation. He would do what I do. And before you know it, your God is not the God of the Bible, the great shepherd of our souls. Your God is your reflection in the mirror, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Instead of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord. Because if these once heroes could be deceived, it can happen. And as the Bible says in the end times, it will happen. And I believe we are closer to Christ's second coming than we've ever been. So is it a surprise that I see deception on the rise? Of course not. It's not a surprise. This is what we would expect, that the devil would be doing this, because that's always how he's attacked the people of God. Who was it that Elijah had the most problems with? The kings of Israel. Not the king of Babylon, not the king of Assyria. It was the king of Israel. Who were the ones that persecuted Jeremiah? The prophets of Israel. From the priest to the prophet to the kings, they can all be deceived. 
And my friends, from the bishops to the pastors to the evangelists to everyone in between, the authors, the conference speakers, we could all be deceived. My prayer is as I hear this is not to skip over the application, but to make sure today that I examine myself, as the Bible says, I examine myself to make sure that I'm not deceived by myself because I do believe God is able to give me the truth so that I may hold on to it. And by knowing that truth, it will make me free. Amen? Amen. I believe that. So he says to them in verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his sheep by name. That's so precious. He leads them out. When he has brought them out on, uh, brought all of them out, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow them, because, follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will always run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So now in verse 7, therefore Jesus said again, very truly, I'm telling you, I am the gate for the sheep. So now he just makes it clear. Hey, guys, I'm the gate for the sheep. Let's, let's just make it real obvious here. And all who have come before me are thieves and they are robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. What he is saying is that there are those that know God's voice and they don't follow another. May we be like those. Can I hear an amen? Amen. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and find pasture. The thief, and highlight that please, John 10, 10, famous verse of the scripture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the what? The full or the abundant life. Notice how Jesus now gives us what no thief or robber ever could. He gives us the abundant life. Who is he speaking to at this time? He is speaking to the Jewish people who are now believing in him and are getting put out of the synagogue. They are now suffering persecution alongside of Jesus. And he's letting them know, you are on the right side. Even though people may not like you, they may not love you, they may be coming against you. Listen, those are thieves. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. How many have that life today? That's Zoe life. I named one of my daughters after that word of life. The overflowing, abundant, more than enough God life. The God kind of life. Not just existing, not just taking in oxygen and the beating of a heart, but the Holy Ghost filled, powerful life. Where Jesus is your best friend, the Father's got your back, and the Holy Spirit empowers you to do all that you can do. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And this life that we have, it cannot be taken away by all the troubles of this world. It remains, amen. So for our brothers and sisters who may have uh, temporary suffering, they can hold on to the promise of eternal life that never fades away. And then now Jesus makes it even more plain. I am the good shepherd. So not only is he the gate, not only is he that in the, the illustration, the parable, but he's also the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, the moment we hear that Jesus is our shepherd, what psalm comes to mind? What psalm comes to mind? Which one? Psalm 23. That's right. Let's go there. He highlighted it for you. He's helping you. Isn't that a popular psalm? And what does it say there? The Lord is my shepherd. Wow, the Lord is my shepherd. Who is the Lord according to the Bible? 
According to the Old Testament, before we meet the person of Jesus at the incarnation, let me be very specific with you theologians. Before we meet the person of Jesus at the incarnation, who does the Old Testament say the Lord is? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, right? He goes by a special name, Yahweh, the I am that I am, the self-existing one. He says of himself that he has no beginning and he has no end. This one said through David, the Lord is my shepherd. Inspiring David to write, I can almost imagine this coming from one of his younger years. But we don't know the exact time frame of this. But this could have come from his younger years, even before he was anointed king, while he was out there as a mere shepherd. God inspiring him to write these wonderful psalms, which are just songs. He writes this one, and he declares that the God of the universe is not just his creator somewhere far off, that the God of the universe is not just this scary person, this figure on a throne, that the God of the universe is his shepherd. Like how he's a shepherd for these sheep so close that he can take care of them and watch after them. God gives him a revelation. David, that's what I am for you. No other religion has such a God. No other religion. All of these gods are but mere idols. And yet our God reveals to David he's a shepherd. And let us not forget that a shepherd among the people of Israel was the lowliest of the positions. Remember, we learn in the story of David that it's the young one who goes out there and takes care of the sheep. It's the, the dirty job that no one really wants to do because it's going to require getting your hands dirty, putting up with sheep. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen that, that TikTok video, but sheep aren't very smart. There's a TikTok video where a sheep jumps into a pit. The shepherd gets out the sheep, it runs a little bit further, and then jumps right back into the pit. That would be a good one to see today. I'll try to put it up on my Facebook. But that requires the shepherd to get dirty multiple times taking care of these silly sheep. Yet our king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he says, I'm your shepherd. And now all of these wonderful things tell us how close he is to us. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters or still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the paths of righteousness or the right paths for his namesake. And even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. How many have read these scriptures before in your darkest valley and you felt the comfort of our Lord? Hallelujah. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And you want to look at the privilege of this sheep? Because I've never seen a shepherd bring the sheep home at night to stay in the tent with them. He says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's how much he loves us. He brings us into his house with him. I know some of y'all crazy, you let your cats and your dogs sleep with you, but I ain't ever seen somebody do that with a sheep before. Because they're nasty, they're dirty, but this shepherd, he brings us in. Why? Because he cleans us, makes us as white as snow, as white as wool. Going back to Jesus, do you see how amazing this is for us? Because now we know who that person is. 
Who is that person? This is where all the theologians can come out and show how smart you are. Who has been that person the Father has been sending all throughout the Old Testament? Who is that person? Jesus is the pre-incarnated Jesus. He is the one meeting with Abraham on the plains of Mamre. He's the one promising to make him a great nation. He's the one showing up to Hagar and taking care of her. And Hagar says, the God who sees me, I have saw him. That's what she says about him. And he's there with Jacob wrestling with him to teach him humility for the plan that lies ahead. He's there with Moses meeting with him as a cloud by day, a fire by night in the holy of holy place. And He's there as the fourth man in the fire, hallelujah. And he's the promised one to come who will be known as Emmanuel and mighty God. He's the one that Zechariah says, the Lord rebukes you, Satan, and takes on our battles for us. And so now here he is in the flesh, and he is speaking to his own people. And he says, I am the good shepherd. Now you know why in a few moments they're going to say he's demon-possessed. Because that isn't just something you just say flippantly to a Jew. Go to Isaiah 40, verse 11. It wasn't just a theme in David's time. It's all throughout the prophets of who the shepherd of Israel is. The shepherd of Israel is God. It's not a mere angel. Angels come and help. But the shepherd is God. It's not kings and priests and prophets. It's God. God is the shepherd of his people. And yet now Jesus is saying, I am that shepherd. Here we see in Isaiah, God speaking. He says, uh, he tends his flock like a shepherd, or rather Isaiah speaking about his God. Isaiah says about his God, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I mean, can you even measure the waters that he can hold in his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? We still haven't even found the end of our universe. Hallelujah. This is like God's aquarium and we're in it. And we haven't even seen the boundaries yet. Keep it up there for the preacher, please. It says, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales? And the hills in a balance. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? We can't even argue with God unless he gave us a brain to reason with. So how dare we now think we're going to beat God at chess when he invented the game and invented us. Amen. God is our creator, and he holds all of these things in his hand. Just see the greatness of our God, but please scroll back up. What does it say about him, though? He is our shepherd, the one that holds the oceans in his hands that we can't even measure yet. We're not sure how deep it goes in some places. We can't put all the dust and weigh it out yet in our hands or you know, put it on a scale. We don't even know the end of our universe yet, and yet... Who is our God to you? Who is he to us? Our shepherd. Going back to the book of John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And now watch this, because this is going to change everything they thought that the Messiah would do. He says, keep it up there for me, please. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I don't think we understand that like we should. Did you not just hear what Isaiah said? 
He holds the whole universe in his hands. We haven't even caught up to the boundaries of this God and his creative power. And yet the very one who did all of that is going to lay down his life for us. Now, do you know why Peter went from getting a, good, uh, a gold star next to his name to being called Satan? It didn't make sense to him. Okay, now we get it. You're the God, man. You're the son who has the full image and deity of the father. Okay, I get that. You've come to do all these things. So he affirms him. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And what does he say? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. That's an amazing revelation, is it not? That's a great revelation. But what's the one that he misses? That God will die for man. That the very one who took on flesh will now die in that flesh. And let us just answer this question of how God can die because people confuse it all the time. We do not mean death equals non-existence. When you die, do you stop existing? Of course not. So when Jesus died, he died only in his flesh. He did not stop stop existing. So people try to say, how could God die if he's God? He can't stop existing. That's not what we believe death is. We believe Jesus took on an earth suit, and that earth suit died. But what did he do while he was three days in the grave? He went down and defeated death, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. And he resurrected with the saints of old and brought them forth to heaven as a treasure to his father. So when we say that God died, we mean it in the sense of his human nature, to be specific. But what a powerful revelation. The good shepherd who created the heavens, the starry host, the earth, the universe, that which we have not found the boundaries of, that shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Is it any wonder that the scripture said, if he's done all of this for us, how much more will he give us whatever else we need in life? Isn't it something that Paul, when he reflects on this, he says, let us look at the great love of God that is demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What can separate us? Paul goes on to say, what can separate you and me from the love of God? Nothing. Not even death itself could separate us from him. Now he goes on to say the hired hand, verse 12, is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep, runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Go to Jeremiah chapter 33, a little land yet. I don't have it there in the notes. But I could spend a great deal of time on this about how I believe that the false prophets and leaders of that time were the very ones that he was calling out. Um, Jeremiah 31. Let's go to 31. It may not be 33. Go to verse 31. Go back to 33. It might be down just a little bit. I want to give you some land. Yep, scroll down for me, please. Uh, Lauren, look up for me the scripture uh, where, where it says, it's not my word like a rock. And I want everyone to, and it breaks the, uh, no, it's not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock and stones. It's Jeremiah, one of these passages. And I want you to see the context of this. I wish I, I could recall all scripture from memory. How many wish you could do that? But I want you to see, which one is it? Oh, 23, not 33, 23. So there's a three in there somewhere. Pray for your pastor, minus 10. No idea how to put that into a spiritual connotation. Woe to the shepherds. Notice this. Woe to the shepherds. Hold on. Well, I thought God was the shepherd. 
Do you know that God said that priests and prophets and kings are like him, supposed to be shepherds? That's not just an Old Testament uh, idea. That's also in the New Testament. When Peter talks about the elders who ruled the church, what does he call them? He calls them pastors. You've heard that in Spanish, el pastors, right? The el pastor taco. Because it goes back to the shepherding idea. You see, this word has been used in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But what makes a good shepherd on earth good when they're like their heavenly shepherd? What makes one bad when they're not like their heavenly shepherd? Notice here what he says to these prophets, what he says to these priests, what he says to these kings. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture declares the Lord. That's the good shepherd talking. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done. Notice how serious God is here. Because you have not bestowed, you have not given them care, I'm going to now bestow on you a butt whooping. Amen? Don't you like how the Bible's written poetic like that? That could be put into a rap. You know what I'm saying? To the pastors. Because you don't give my people love and you don't give them hugs and because you don't care for them I'm going to send you to hell and burn on fire like a broken branch oh, with, with fire from above or something I tried to find a rhyme because they did not care for God's people God is not going to care for them when I think about all the pastors that have abused God's sheep, it breaks my heart. I think about pastors who only look out for themselves. I have right now on my personal Facebook post, and I don't want to judge this man's heart, but I can only judge what I see and what was presented before me. T.D. Jakes doing a woman's conference, Woman Thou Art Loosed, with a Coca-Cola logo on the screen during the entire conference. Have we gotten to the point where we're now taking worldly sponsorships in our conferences? <laughs> I said on the post, are we now next going to have people dressing up in their sponsorships like they do from NASCAR? That you're going to see a Coca-Cola badge on them and another badge over here supported by this one and that one? How well... Do you have to get along with the world that you can preach an entire sermon and they're proud to have their logo on the screen? Think about how much compromise you must have to be able to preach an entire sermon and Coca-Cola say, we sign off on it, we're good with it, keep that logo up, boys. How many know already in this service Coca-Cola would have already pulled their sponsorship from this sermon? How many know Pepsi-Cola wouldn't have done any better? They wouldn't have done any better. But this is where we've come. And it only makes sense, doesn't it? Because so many of these pastors, this is all it is. It's not making disciples, it's making dollars. It's not about transforming hearts. It's about getting people to release their wallets. And I, I just am heartbroken that I see this all over our country now. Going back to the passage, and if you have time, read it all the way down through the part that I was talking about. God's not okay with that. 
We who teach, the Bible says in the book of James, will be held to a higher standard because I'm a shepherd and I will be held to a higher standard. Those of you who lead Bible studies and life groups and do discipleship, and that should be a lot of you here, right? We're going to be held to a higher standard. Why do you do it? I mean, do you look at it for your own gain? Do you try to uh, see people for the wool that they can give you in the pork chop you can, or not the pork chop, but the lamb chop you can get out of them? Or do you serve them because Christ has served you and you will serve them not as a hireling, but as someone who loves? The wolf attacks, the flock scatters, the man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And we didn't, uh, didn't we see that during the time of COVID? Uh, no, no real standing up against the, the government, no real standing up towards BLM churches, putting that all over their, their church. And even though those people were antichrist led by lesbians, they just let the flock be devoured by those movements and by their governments. I'm not saying that we have to always pick a fight. The Bible says to live quietly and at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. But there has to be a time where a shepherd uses the other side of that uh, shepherd's rod. You know, the first part, the crook, the, the, the shaped part that looks like a candy cane, that's to bring people in. That's to, that's to help those lost sheep come on in. But you know what the other side is made for? <laughs> it's made to be used like a staff and to beat the wolf, not the sheep. Sometimes people say that the shepherd will break the legs of the sheep and those things. I've heard that debunked. Shepherds don't be breaking their sheep's leg. Sometimes uh, pastors who want to be mean say that. It's not true. But listen, he uses that to beat off wolves. He uses that as a weapon. And so if the hireling, if the hireling is running away, who defends the sheep? You see, no one. And that's what Jeremiah was saying. The sheep get devoured. Verse 14, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And here we see Isaiah 53 being brought out in Micah chapter 2, verse 12, these prophecies of uh, the suffering servant, of a shepherd who dies for his people. See, Peter needed to realize that Jesus was not going to conquer the world without first conquering our hearts. Jesus was not going to come and first establish his kingdom on the earth without first establishing it in our lives. And he not only was going to do it for Israel, but he was going to do it for the nations. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. How many believe the Gentiles come in with the Jews? Let me just show you that because there's people today of all types of walks of life trying to teach you that only the Jews get saved, whether the black Hebrew Israelites or some white person with dreadlocks uh, eating granola bars, okay, trying to take you back to the Sabbath. Go to Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, all right? You'll meet them in all types of walks and different flavors, but any call back to Judaism as a form of right Righteousness is a fool's errand. The covenant was made with the Jewish people, fulfilled in Christ, and now we're grafted into Christ. Therefore, we get the benefits of the Jewish people. But we do not have to go back into their old covenant, as Galatians says. We stay in the new covenant with them. Now, a Jewish person can keep all these feasts and festivals as best as they can, which, by the way, the majority of their laws they can't even keep because they don't have a temple. Even these uh, phony Jewish people today who try to bring Gentiles back into the law, they can't even follow the law because out of those 613 laws, a great majority of them revolved around an actual physical temple in Jerusalem. But notice here what it says in Zechariah. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. This is a powerful verse. Many nations. How many nations? Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. 
I will live among you, and you will know that who sent me? The Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So who sends this person? The Lord Almighty. But who says he's coming? The Lord. See, father and son right there. They've been around for a while, haven't they? The son is saying, I'm coming, and you're going to know the father has sent me. The Lord says, the Lord has sent me. We know Jesus now in front of them is saying, the father has sent me. So we know these two persons, and then we know the Holy Spirit is there as well. And so when we go back to our notes, we see Revelation, and that famous passage says that around the throne of God is people from every tribe, language, and tongue, okay? And so we here today as a church need to represent the great diversity of the kingdom of God, amen? So we are inclusive to all nations, but it's exclusive through Jesus Christ. That's why it doesn't matter what color Jesus was as long as he bled red for me to forgive me of my sins. Amen? And I don't care what kind of man he was, like in the sense of was he a tall man, a short man, a healthy, big, plump man, or a skinny man. I just care that he was the God man who was my good shepherd who laid his life down for me. Amen? (laughs) Hallelujah. So he says, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them, also, uh, bring them in also. We know that's going to be going to the Gentiles as we see the book of Acts. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock with one shepherd. The reason why my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Notice the authority that Jesus has. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority. Thank you. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Do you have authority to lay down your life whenever you want? Well, in one sense you do if you want to take your own life, right? Commit suicide. So you do, in one sense, have authority to take your life, don't you? But you wouldn't be blessed for it. You would be in rebellion to God's authority who wants you to have a long life, right? But here's now the real question. Do you have authority to take it back up? (laughs) That's my Jesus. See, my Jesus can lay it down and pick it right back up. He is the one that gave us life. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and through him, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen? Jesus is telling us that he's in charge. He does this in uh, unity with his Father. He is in perfect unity with his Father. Verse 19, the Jews who heard these words, okay? So listen to what uh, they're going to say as a response to this amazing teaching. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Is the joke on Jesus or is the joke on them? The joke's really on them, isn't it? They have met their creator. They have met the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. They have met their shepherd. Their shepherd has done things that no one else has done. He has broke down the words of Scripture to them. He has said in the previous chapters, before Abraham was, I am. He has told them everything about himself that they need to believe. Even when they come on the sneaky sneak, on the slick, to meet with him by themselves, like Nicodemus, he takes time out to explain himself. And at the end of that, they say he's demon-possessed, raving mad. Going back to what we talked about at the beginning, do you see why people could kill Jesus with a clear conscience? And even shout out, what did they say? Let his blood be on our heads and on our children. They were so 
believing that they were right, that they said, let whatever could possibly be wrong about this come upon my life and my children's life. And did they not experience their children's disaster at the destruction of their temple and the city in Jerusalem when it was destroyed in 70 AD? And yet they believed, some of these people believed they were right. People can be, listen, people can be so demon-possessed, they think you're demon-possessed. Do not feel there is something necessarily wrong with you if people don't like you and say evil against you. They said about our Jesus, the greatest man that's ever walked the earth, who is from eternity, the perfect man who they had no sin to bring up even at his trial. All they could do is take him out of context. This one, they said about him, he's demon-possessed. What do you think they're going to say about you, Juan at Lollapalooza? They're going to say a lot more than just that, aren't they? And that's what they say about us because they don't have the Spirit of God. Real, recognize real, baby. you got to have the Spirit to recognize the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't recognize the Spirit of God. So those here, they thought that because they couldn't recognize the Spirit on Jesus as similar to theirs, that that must be that he's demon-possessed. But you see, the conflict was really on their side. The reason why they couldn't understand Jesus' spirit is because they had the spirit of the devil. Can I hear an amen? And that's why the world looks at us as hate mongers because really they have hate. They look at us as we're evil, but it's really their evil. It's because they don't have the spirit of God. And how many know when we didn't have the spirit of God, we were no better than them? And we were just like him. Verse 21. But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that was a sign to them that the Messiah was with them because no one could open the eyes of the blind except the Messiah. No miracle in the Old Testament ever involved blinded eyes opening. That was something that was reserved in Isaiah 61 for the Messiah. That is a great promise. And it was fulfilled in Jesus Now, verse 22, he comes to the festival of dedication, the place where they're all celebrating what the Pharisees did at one point in history. The very ones that are calling him demon-possessed, that want to kill him, he's going to their party. He's going to celebrate what their ancestors have done. It's in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered there around them said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 25. I did tell you, but you did not believe. How many more ways does he need to say it? If he says he's the good shepherd, that must mean he's the Messiah. The Bible says clearly no one has ever seen the Father and lived. He doesn't say he's the Father. He says if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in the sense that you've seen the character and nature, but no one's ever met with the Father. When Moses asked for that, God told, uh, the Father told Moses, you can only see my back, you can't see my face and live. And as I've showed you in that same exact chapter, the Bible says Moses met with God face to face. How is it in one place Moses can meet with the Lord face to face, and then another place he says, you can't see my face and live? They understood that there were two powers. A Jewish man wrote a book about this. He's not even a Christian. The two powers of the Jewish people. And then the Shekinah, the glory of God, the Shekinah, is the Holy Spirit. So there's technically three powers, but they only think the third power is the presence of the two. 
In other words, you look at the scriptures and you see Jesus all throughout it, and now he's there in person, and he's telling them all of these prophecies point to him. Now, some people ask, why doesn't he just say, I am the Messiah? Because that's not how God speaks in the scriptures. The Messiah was never said to identify himself in that way. The identity of the Messiah was supposed to be by his works and what he accomplished for God. It was supposed to be an act of faith of God's people to recognize him. He will at the end, at his trial, he will say, it is what you say, I am that person. But here, he is giving them the chance to have faith. And this is why, by the way, because some people try to find a trick in the Bible. The Bible says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, you shall be what? Saved. But every knee is going to bow and confess what at the end time? Jesus is Lord. Then why aren't they saved? See, people try to find a trick in the uh, contradiction in the Bible. The reason why, after everybody has bowed their knee and called Jesus Lord on the day of final judgment, the reason why they're not saved is because it's no longer an act of faith. It's an act of judgment. Of course I'm Lord. I'm stomping on you right now. Do you get what I'm saying? The Bible says he rules them with a rod of iron. The way I like to say it, he, right, he rules them with a baseball bat. Of course now they're saying he's Lord. But it's the faith that saves now. See, it's the faith in Jesus being Lord before he subdues the nations that saves. So this is why he's not just coming out going, I am the Messiah. But he does say, I did tell you, but you did not believe me. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are what? One. Not one as a person, but one in nature. Otherwise, he would be contradicting all the other times he's talking to the Father if he's supposedly talking to himself. <laughs> How many believe Jesus is actually talking to a person called the Father? Okay, so he is not the Father, as some have tried to say, but he's one in nature with him, as we've learned throughout the Scriptures. Verse 31, again, we've, we've heard this is not their first time, right? So again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Isn't that something? Out of all of the responses they could have had, they call our Jesus demon-possessed and want to stone him. Out of all the responses we could have had the time I was preaching at Logan Square, you know what they did? Peed. A woman dropped her pants and peed on the sidewalk. Out of all the responses she could have had while we were preaching, brothers and sisters, that was the one she came up with. Somebody say the devil is a liar. See, people cannot handle the truth, so out of their own anger, they try to do whatever they can to silence the message. And so here they try to stone him. We are not stoning you for a good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. <clears throat> Excuse me, how many know they understand what he's claiming to be? They say you claim to be God. The Messiah is God in the flesh with them. He got it. So those of you who think, well, he was playing so many tricks with them, they couldn't know. No, they understood when he said, I am he. I have already told you this, but you have not believed. They understood exactly what he said. That's why they want to kill him. They want to kill him because he is making himself out to be God, the Messiah figure, Isaiah 9, 6, to us a son is given, to us a child is born, and he shall be called all of these wonderful things, right? One of them is mighty God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be set aside. 
What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and said unto the world, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. You notice he uses the argument that comes from the scripture where people were called God's. Now, as uh, Lawrence comes quickly, I just want to, explain, I want to explain to you why Jesus said this. And sadly, can I just get everybody look up at me, please? Many of you do not understand why Jesus used Psalm 110 to show who he was. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies under your footstool. And some of you do not understand the scripture. Please, listen to me. You need to know how Jesus used scripture. Some of you only know Jesus as scripture, but you don't know how Jesus used scripture, Okay. Jesus was accused of calling himself God, making himself equal to God, and now they could kill him because that was a blasphemy law. But he went to their scriptures and he showed them that the judges of Israel, and I have the reference there, were called gods, Elohim. Why were they called Elohim? Because in their language, if you had a lot of a power and authority, you could be called a god. Even the Jewish people used that word. We don't use it like that because we think that's sacrilegious. But among the Jewish people, you could have a God of basketball, which we would hear like LeBron being called that or Charlemagne the God, and we get upset about that, and rightly so. But the Jewish people called people gods who had great authority. It's in the Old Testament. It makes me almost want to now bring in second service and preach this on the title, Ye Are Gods, okay? But it's spoken to the judges. I have it. It's Exodus 22.8. The word is Elohim. But the English, they put judges there because they go, well, that's what the author meant. No, the author actually meant what he put there, Elohim. He called them Elohim. You are Elohim to the people of Israel. They understood this. But they knew these were not gods as a religious sense. They knew these were not gods of worship. Otherwise, literally in the same books where they're getting the Ten Commandments, they're breaking the Ten Commandments, calling each other gods, okay? Jesus used that. So we know it's not wrong, like, oh, the Jews were wrong for that. Jesus now actually uses that. He said, you know how judges were called gods. This would be like how we would say a superhero. These men were called these things. And yet the Bible says in Psalm 82.6, God ended up cursing them because they weren't good judges, and they died as mere men. Matter of fact, just show it to him quickly in closing 82.6, please. And now Jesus points out, he says, if you know that it's okay to refer to your rulers as gods, why are you being upset with me? Psalm 82.6, please. Psalm 82.6. Why are you upset with me when this was how God spoke? 82.6. Just waiting for you, brothers, so they can see it. I said, God speaking, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Does everybody see that? Jesus is not trying to trick you. It's just Jesus is a lot smarter than we think he is. Okay? You need to understand how Jesus used Scripture. Going back to John. He said, you guys know God referred to these judges as gods. You called them gods in your Hebrew. You didn't call them a judge, like how we say in the English, judge, J-U-D-G-E. You called them Elohim. He said, if that was acceptable to be used as a title, why are you hypocrites upset with me when I am God, his son? Are you guys listening to me? 
God the Son. That's what he is saying. Not just son, like a different nature than the Father. If I am human, what is my son by nature? Is, it a, is my son a dog by nature? What is my son by nature if the Father is a human? human? So when he says he's God's son, is he saying he's something different than the nature of God as a son? No, he's the son of God, God's son, God the son. Those are the same understandings. So he rebukes them for their hypocrisy. It says, you've called your rulers, your judges, gods, superheroes, when you knew they weren't the true God, and now the true God is here, the son of God, and you're calling me a blasphemer. You don't know your own scriptures, in other words. Praise God for my Jesus. Isn't he awesome, Brother John? Isn't that awesome? And you can show that to the Jehovah Witnesses and others who do not know the nature of Jesus. When you know how Jesus used Psalm 110 and Psalm 82.6, you'll be a terror to any cult that considers Jesus less than equal with the Father. This is how Jesus spoke about the Scriptures, which would throw most of you off, right? Like the moment Jesus said that, most of you are like, he called somebody gods in the Bible? Yeah, God called people gods. He did. But he meant it in the way of you are strong rulers. You've been given a lot of authority. That's how he meant it. But they didn't use that authority right, so he judged them and he punished them. And then Jesus says, I am actually God, his son in the flesh. Verse 37, you do not believe me, or do not believe me unless I do the Father, uh, excuse me, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. So he said, listen, don't just do it, uh, believe it because I say it, do it because I do, uh, believe it because I do it. And that's what separates us from all these other cults, you know. Their founders are dead. They didn't do anything. Here Jesus says, uh, believe on the works that I do. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Though you know and understand that the Father is in me, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Let me just read this again. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. No prophet ever spoke like that, did they, Jason? Nobody ever said, I have that relationship with the Father. Again, what did they try to do? To seize them, to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across to the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Then he stayed there and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And highlight verse 42, and let's get ready to shout and get excited. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Would you stand up if you believe in Jesus today? Come on, give him a hand clap of praise one more time. We believe in you, Jesus. And in altar workers, would you come, please? Thank you, Second Service, for your patience. How many learned something about our Jesus today? How many believe in that Jesus? The good shepherd, the gate, the one that is equal with the Father, in the Father with the power and authority to lay down his life and take it up again. I pray today if you don't know Jesus, you'll repent of your sins and come to one of these prayer workers to accept Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I pray that you bless us as we go our separate ways, but never from your presence. And we pray that everyone here who's a Christian will live like you. We'll follow your example and go find some lost sheep out there, Father. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, amen. Can you bless the Lord?